Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you in the study of your word. We ask you to guide and lead us, and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Joshua chapter 20, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> and the Lord also spoke unto Joshua, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out of your cities of refuge, whereof I spoke unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that kills any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and you and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he that does flee unto one of these cities shall stand in the, at the entering of the city, and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of the city, they shall take him into the city unto them, and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of the blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hands, because he smote his neighbor unwittingly, and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation of judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come to his own city and unto his own house and unto the city of it from whence he fled. All right, so we're going to stop there for just a moment. And we're going to talk about the cities of refuge. And we've talked about these in the past. In Exodus 21, it talked about the cities of refuge. And in Numbers 35, it talked about the cities of refuge. And the city of refuge was that protection for somebody who basically, what we would say, committed manslaughter. They weren't angry with somebody. It was just an accidental death. Uh, and as it's described in Exodus uh, and Leviticus, you're chopping wood and the, the ax head comes off the off the axe and, and strikes them in the, you know, and kills them, or a uh, stone is thrown and, and accidentally hit them, or you know, that type of death. And what would happen is, in those days, they really didn't have a police force, so if somebody was killed by another person, their family would go out and kill that person who killed their family member. And so this was a possible, uh, the, the idea that if somebody accidentally killed them, they could run to a city of refuge. And there were cities of refuge. When they finally got done, there was a city of refuge no more than a two-day trip away, and usually within one day, one day hard, hard uh, running <laughs> to get to these cities of refuge. And so if you had accidentally killed somebody, your, your, your plan was to get to that city as fast as you could because of the avenger of the fam, of the, of the member, caught you outside of the city, they could kill you and there would be no recourse for them killing you even though it was an accidental death. And as, this, as it said here in these verses, when you got to the city, you had to plead your case with them and tell them that it was an accident. And you had to be, and eventually you would have a trial. And you'd have, and they would be able to bring witnesses to it and say, well, you know, he said that he would kill my, you know, kill my uncle or whatever, or there was no, you know, if, you, if they could prove their case that you had any kind of premeditation or any kind of hatred toward that person, then you would be delivered over to the avenger of the blood. If you, if they could not prove their case, then you were stuck in that city. As I said, they, they would give you a place to, to stay for, for the duration of the high priest life because that was how long you had to stay in that city of refuge. So it was kind of an interesting bag. You, it wasn't a get out of, get out of jail completely free. <laughs> you, know, you, you had a punishment. You had to stay in some place that wasn't your home. 
and that meant you didn't have fields, anything. If you left the gate of the, of the city of refuge and the avenger of the family was standing out there as you, and you, as you walked out the gate, you were fair game. And it, uh, it sounds kind of cruel in one sense, but you know, this is what we do in manslaughter. Somebody commits manslaughter, they still go to prison, they just will not pay in any state with a life sentence and usually only a short, short period of time, depending on how bad their negligence was. And uh, so God had this whole plan in mind that if it was a negligent accident or an accidental accident, you didn't have to pay for your life. And remember, this idea of blood for blood goes all the way back into Genesis, that if man, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood would be shed. And in Genesis, it went all the way down to animals. If an animal killed a man, that animal was to be killed, whether domesticated or wild. That, that animal was to be killed. If a man killed another man, they were to be executed. And so here, God puts a little, he tempers that with a little bit of justice that says, if it's accidental, they don't have to pay with their life. And that makes logical sense, and God is very just in it. And, you know, we've talked about this. You know, it, seemed to, uh, it seems to us in our day and age when God said, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, you know, a cut for a cut, that that was pretty cruel. But again, in that day and age, when he said this to people, that was a day that if you hurt me, my whole family would come and take everything you owned if we were strong enough to do so. And that was, you know, and that was when the Jews were saying, well, we could only, we could only take, you know, knock out a tooth if they knocked out our tooth. And people around them were looking at, you guys are strange. You guys are a bunch of wimps. You know, why don't you take and really make them pay for what they've done? And yet we look back at it and say, wow, how cruel and, <laughs> cruel and horrible it is. In their day, it was a totally different thing. And Jesus comes along, and what's he says? Love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. So Jesus takes it another level deeper. And so these cities of refuge were, were put in, and God says, okay, Moses, you've given the land to the people. Now pick the cities. <laughs> put the cities in place. And uh, verse 7, we're going to read a bunch of names. <laughs> or I'm going to read a bunch of names. And they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in Mount Nephetali, and Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and Gerja Abba, which is Hebron in the mountain of Judah. And on the other side of Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness upon the plain out of the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan out of the tribe of Manasseh, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourned among them that whosoever killed any person at unawares might flee thither and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. All right? So we have this handful of cities are cities of refuge. And they're scattered throughout Israel. And like I say, they were that idea of a safe haven. You know, you accidentally killed somebody, you could, get, you could go to it. And then you stayed there. You would have a trial. You had to prove that you did it by accident or somebody where they actually had to prove that you would have had malice when you did it. And if they could not prove that by the witness of two witnesses, and remember, everything in Israel had to have two or more witnesses that agreed for the death penalty to be uh, 
uh, applied. And does anybody remember, we talked about this a long time, we have laws for perjury. Does anybody remember what the laws for perjury are in the Bible? Kind of. You get, you get whatever the penalty would have been to the person you were perjuring. So in many cases, usually it would be death because you were usually a death case, a capital crime. But if, you're, if their crime would have meant that they served somebody for a certain period of time and you perjured yourself, then you would be in service instead of them. Pretty strong penalty for perjury. Not just a slap on the wrist and thrown into jail for a couple, couple of months. It was, especially in a capital crime, you did not get perjury in a capital crime in, in Israel when the law was applied correctly. Because if, per, if you perjured yourself, then you were killed in their place. So if you were a liar as a witness and you got whatever penalty that would have been due to the person that you were lying against. So they had a pretty strict perjury <laughs> law. You had to go to one of these cities. You couldn't just run to any city. These of refuge were a place where they could go if they had not a manslaughter, committed manslaughter, and they were stuck there. I mean, it's kind of interesting. They were given a place to live. They were not able to really have much. They'd be able to have a garden. You know, they couldn't, couldn't raise animals because they were inside a city. God's mercy was that you didn't, pay, you didn't pay with your life. So they probably were happy with whatever they could get. Because the alternative was to leave the city and be executed by the avenger of the blood because you'd killed their family member. So, you know, this is something that we kind of look at and say, you know, was it the perfect situation? No. They were, they, here it says that they were told that they had to give you a place to, to dwell. And this is really the only place that ever said that they had to give you a place to stay. So in one sense, it is a refuge where kind of a prison in one, in one very strong sense. They were a prison. You were stuck there. And you didn't have a lot. They were the normal prison that the world has out there. There was a safe place to run so that you wouldn't be executed by the family member. You, know, you killed somebody's family member, and that family member had the right to kill you by the laws of, of Israel. And if you killed them by accident, you could run to the city of refuge. And they couldn't get you there. And in the city, you were safe. You had to stay there for life? You had to stay there until the high priest died. That could be, that could be 24 hours, or it could be, it could be 30 or 40 years. <laughs> that is the, the city of refuge. It was God's way of showing mercy to somebody who accidentally committed a murder. And like I say, for us, for us it would be, we would consider it manslaughter. If you committed manslaughter, you don't really deserve to die because you had no intent. Now, if it was intent, if you intended to be, or you had bad feelings toward the person, if you were in first or second degree levels of, of murder, what we would call first or second degree murder, then you would be executed. And even if you ran to the city of refuge and they said, well, this guy is on record as saying he would kill my, you know, kill my father or my brother or uncle or whatever, then it was like, uh, and they could get enough witnesses to, to prove their case, then you would be turned right back out of the city of refuge into the hands of the Avengers, Avenger of the Blood. You couldn't just run there and say, you know, I accidentally did this and, and be getting off scot-free. If you had made threats against this person, then you weren't going to be able to stay in the city of refuge. All right, chapter 21. 
Then came, here we go, we're going to read a long list. I, I get to, I see, keep saying we, but I'm going, to, I'm going to get to read a long list of, of cities here, so. <laughs> you guys suffer through me listening, saying them, yes. We read them, we just do it quiet. <laughs> then came near the heads of the fathers of Levites, unto Eleazar the priest, and unto Joshua the son of Nun, and unto the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke unto them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded by the hand of Moses to give us cities to dwell in with the suburbs thereof for our cattle. And the children of Israel gave unto the Levites out of their inheritance, out of the commandment of the Lord, these cities and their suburbs. So we're going to stop there before we read these cities. Remember that the Levites were chosen by God to be his tribe out of the, out of the tribes. And as a result... They are not getting a land like the other tribes. They are not given land. They're going to be given cities all over, all over Israel, but they are not given a, ch a chunk of land. And we gave you the maps out there to, to see the, the, the pieces of land that they were given. And so the Levites, they've, they've passed out all the land, and the, and the Levites come to the Eliezer, the high priest, and says... Okay, you've given, you've given everybody else their land. Where's our cities? <laughs> okay. And I love this way everybody keeps going back to them. They go, remember that Moses said <laughs> that we're supposed to do this. Like, they keep going up to Joshua and saying, uh, you haven't finished yet. You haven't finished. <laughs> uh, and so we're going to look at this. And, and what was to be given to them were cities for the Levites and a square around the city where they could raise cattle. And the Levites' primary source of income, does anybody remember what their primary source of income and support is supposed to be? The offerings. The tithes and offerings went to the Levites. All right? And the Levites then would give a tithe and offering to the priest, and then the priest would give a tithe and offering to the high priest. Now, if you know the history of Israel, many times they weren't following God. They weren't going to the temple to tithe. And so the poor Levites, the only thing that they would live on is what they could raise outside their cities. <laughs> and again, the suburbs of their cities were only like five miles square around their city, so they didn't have a lot of land to raise crops and animals. So when the people were not following God, were not giving their tithes and offerings, the Levites pretty much stayed home themselves because <laughs> it wasn't worth going to the temple to to not get paid to go to the, not get paid in the process. And so we look at this and it says, so they're going out there and they're going in and they're saying, they go to Eliezer, the high priest, and they say, you know, hey, it's time for us to get ours. Uh, we, spent, we spent the last uh, class talking about all the land being divided and all the cities and borders and everything. And the priests are coming to them. And now we get to read a long list of names and places. Verse 4, and the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites and the children of Aaron, the priests that were, in, that were of the Levites, had by lot out of the tribe of Judah and out of the tribe of Simeon and out of the tribe of Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the children of Kohath had by lot out of the families of the tribe of Ephraim and out of the tribe of Dan and out of the half-tribe of Nasa, 10 cities. And the children of Gershon, Okay, some of these names, does anybody remember some of these names? Let's just ask. Yeah. Co Kohites, yeah. Kohathites, Gershom. Mm -hmm. These are the sons of Levi. All right? 
uh, and related related to Aaron and Joshua, uh, Joshua uh, Aaron and uh, and Moses. Okay, and the children of Gershon had by lot out of the family, out of the tribes of Issachar, and out of the tribe of Asher, and out of the tribe of Naphtali, and out of the half tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. And the children of Maori by, the by their families had out of the tribe of Reuben, and out of the tribe of Gad, and out of the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. And the children of Israel gave by lot unto the Levites these cities with their suburbs as the Lord commanded Moses. So each one of these children of Levi are going to get roughly 12 to 14 cities for them to dwell in. And they were handed out of the other people's land. Basically, they gave a tithe of, tithe of their cities to, to support the, the Levites in this process. And did you notice where, is the, where did they meet with Joshua and uh, Eliezer? Shiloh. Shiloh. And what did we say about Shiloh last week? Does anybody remember what we said last week about Shiloh? Oh, that looks <laughs> 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 no, close. Shiloh is where the, temp the tabernacle is going to stay until David moves it to Jerusalem. Okay? That is, Shiloh is where they're going to worship. When, when uh, Samuel is, is the uh, last judge of the people and the prophet, he is working out of Shiloh. So Shiloh is important to the Jewish people because of its long-term presence of God's tabernacle being there. And that's where they worshiped God. And remember, three times a year, once they get settled, they're going to be going to, starting out with the tabernacle, later on the temple, they go three times, all the males go three times a year to worship God at the tabernacle or the temple. And uh, so we see this event that's going to happen uh, as, they, as they worship at that spot. Verse 9. And they gave out of the tribe of the children of Judah and out of the tribe of the children of Simeon and out these cities that are here mentioned by name. Which the children of Aaron, being of the families of the Kohathites, who had the children of Levi, had for theirs was the first lot. And they gave to them Ebra, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah with, with the suburbs thereof around about it. But the fields of the city and the village whereof they gave to Caleb, the son of Jehuthanath, for his possession. Thus they gave to the children of Aaron, the priest, of Hebron, the priest Hebron, with her suburbs to be the city of refuge for the slayer, and Libna for her, with her sub, suburbs, and Jatir with her suburbs, and Estimol uh, with her suburbs, and Holon with her suburbs, and Deber with her suburbs, and Ain with her suburbs, and Jatah with her suburbs, and Be'er Shemesh with her suburbs, nine cities out of, out of those two tribes. And out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with her suburb, Giba with her suburb, Anathoth with her suburb, Almon with her suburb, four cities. And the cities, all the cities of the children of Aaron the priest were 13 cities with their suburbs. And of the and the families of the children of Kohath, the Levite, which remained of the children of Kohath, even they had their cities by their lot out of the tribe of Ephraim. And they gave them Shishak with her suburbs in Mount Ephraim to be a city 
of refuge for the Slayer and Geezer and her suburbs. Notice on here, it seems like all the cities of refuge got given to the uh, Levites. Yeah. But, you know, usually we kind of think of God's people as being very generous, very helpful, and they probably should be if they're following the scriptures. But even in our day and age, a lot of times God's people are stingy and, and hard-nosed and, and think that, they're, that the people are not deserving of anything. And this happens a lot. You know, try to, try, to be, try to be helping somebody who's trying to get out of alcohol or drugs. And sometimes the church people can be the hardest ones on them because they, they go, well, they, they're getting what they deserve. They don't need help is what they'll say a lot of times. And uh, in Jesus' day, the, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the, the religious leaders were that kind of people. You know, they got what they deserved. They don't need the help. But, you know, we can also be, and I've seen it happen so many times with, with people, you know, uh, sometimes the church will help somebody and you'll have somebody in the church going, well, why are we helping them? It's throwing, it's throwing away, throwing things away because there's just no grace and no mercy toward those people that have problems. And, you know, we've got to do this because the greatest thing is God shows us love. He shows us great love. He gave his son to die for us when we didn't deserve anything from God. And so we need to be very careful that we're not so judgmental of people and saying, well, they're just getting what they deserve. Well, if we got what we would deserve, we'd be in hell. And Jesus would not have died for us. And because he first loved us, we should be loving others. We should be helping others. And I agree with you. The type of help depends to be able to say, okay, let's help you find a job. Let's help you you know, find a place to stay, a roof over your head. Let's help you put food in your cabinets. Maybe just the, the edge that they need to help get started. And, you know, and also we need to be aware of when somebody is changing their life, we need to give them grace and mercy enough to change their life. Too many times somebody is trying hard to change and everybody's looking at them, well, you'll never change. You'll never, you'll never do any better. And they keep pushing that person back down. And, and you know, I've seen this in, in families especially when they don't believe you can change. And I've seen this happen in families where somebody stops drinking, stops using drugs. And then all the family members are waiting for them to fall. To fall. And then when they do, because they had no support, they go, well, I knew you were going to fall anyway. That's why I didn't help you. And if they had just had some support, they might not have fallen in the first place. They may or may not have fallen. We have to keep lifting somebody up. And we, as Christians, need to have this attitude of, we're going to try to help this person. We're going to try to help our family member. Now, are they going to fail? Quite likely they're going to fall. But we need to be like God. How many times do we fall in our walk with God? Whether, whether it's alcohol or drugs or any other sin in, sin in our life. Yeah, a lot of times daily, you know. Uh, and if God did the same thing that we do to those people, we'd be in trouble. Uh, you fell, get out of here. You don't, you, don't, you don't have any place in heaven now because you, you keep falling. God picks us right back up and gives us grace. Uh, and, we've got, and almost it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when we don't help somebody because we expect them to fail. We're not helping them, and then they fall, and we go, see, we knew you were going to fall anyway, so that's why we didn't want to help you. Now, again, we don't give them money so that we help them fall, but we're going to try to help them in whatever way we can that actually helps. And sometimes that's a hard decision. What actually can help somebody? What will actually help a poor person get out of their poverty? Just handing them money for doing nothing doesn't work. God said, 
you know, to the people as they harvested their fields. Leave the corners of your fields unharvested. If you're, as your guys are uh, looking the grain and it falls to the ground, don't pick it up. Why? Because the poor were to come in and glean the fields. They had to get up off their butts and go to work. <laughs> and that was what God said, you know, they're going to come, we're going to make it easy. They didn't have to plant. They didn't have to fertilize the field. They didn't have to tend the field. But they do have to get up and actually harvest what was dropped and pick up what was dropped. And some of the generous farmers left huge corners. Some of those who didn't, didn't like the rule would leave very small corners. It was the way that God says that he was going to help the poor was that they got up and did some help of their own. And that's what true help is going to do is help people get out and do something. Because just giving somebody something does not help them. 20. And the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites which remained with the children of Kohath, even they had their cities by lot out of the tribe of Ephraim. And they gave them the Shechem and their suburbs of Ephraim and the city of refuge for the slayer and Gezer and her suburbs and Gibzerim with her suburbs and Beth Horam, Horan with her suburbs, four cities. And out of the tribe of Dan, Eltekah with her suburbs, Gibbethon with her suburbs, Ajalon with her suburbs, Gathrim, Mom with her suburbs, four cities. And out of the half tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with her suburbs, and Gathrimlam with her suburbs, two cities. All these cities were ten with their suburbs for the families of the children of Kohath that remained. And unto the children of Gershon, the families of the families of Levite, out of the other half of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan with her suburbs to be a city for refuge for the slayer, and Beshethterah and her suburbs, two cities. And out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishon with her suburbs, Dabarah with her suburbs, Jarmoth with her suburbs, Inganium with her suburbs, four cities, and out of the tribe of Asher, Misha with her suburbs, Abdon with her suburbs, Helkoth with her suburbs. Be glad when we get done with all these names. <laughs> and Rehoth with her suburbs, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Gadesh in Galilee with her suburbs to be a city of refuge for the slayer, and Hamothdor with her suburbs, and Kartan with her suburbs, three cities. And out of the cities of, Ger of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities in their suburbs. And unto the families of the children of Merari, the rest of the Levites out of the tribe of Zebulun, Jachniam and her suburbs, and Karta with her suburbs, Dimna with her suburbs, Nahalal with her suburbs, four cities, and out of the tribe of Reuben, Bizur with her suburbs, and Jahazah with her suburbs, Kedemoth with her suburbs, Methaath with her suburbs, four cities, and out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with her suburbs, to be a city of refuge for the slayer, and Mahanaim with her suburbs, Heshbon with her suburbs, Jazir with her suburbs, four cities in all. So all the cities of the children of Merari by their families were with the remaining of the Le family of the Levites were by their lot 12 cities. All the cities that the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their suburbs. These cities were everyone with their suburbs round about them. Thus were all 
these cities. So the children, the Levites got 48 cities to, to be intermixed amongst all of Israel. And so in Jesus' day, and then actually in David's day, there were so many Levites, if, if you recall, we've talked about this in the past, that they divided the Levites up into 24 different groups. And they would get to serve in the temple two weeks a year. And what a hard job they had. They had to go serve two weeks a year in the temple. And then the rest of the time they would spend at their homes. And then they would go back and, and serve again. And uh, many of them, by the time we get to the New Testament, we had Zacharias, Elizabeth's husband, who finally got to go to the temple, and he got chosen by lot to go in and, and serve in the temple. He was to chain, he was to make sure the light, the the, the lights were still on in the temple, and, and refilled the oil. And that's when he saw Gideon, who told him that him and Elizabeth were going to have the child, and that led to John the Baptist. And he'd spent his whole service, and that was probably the only time he ever got to do anything inside the temple. And remember, what most of the Levites did in their service for the, in the temple was they got to kill animals and skin them. <laughs> that, was their, that was their job for the most part. Uh, the priest, the, the, priest the, the children of Aaron, would get to go in to the Holy of Holies once a year, and they were the ones that actually would bless the, bless the people and bless the offerings. And the Levites, they tended the showbread and the candles and the incense. And that was a job they did twice a day. So there was, you know, when you have hundreds of Levites, you may never step inside the temple ever in your lifetime, ever in your career, step inside the temple. Most of your life was taken in cutting the throat of the animals and skinning them and preparing them for the offering. So they were almost, almost more like butchers than they were, you know. They saw a lot of blood. And, you know, having said that, there, there was a lot of blood that happened, especially like on Passover. In the Passover celebrations, all the Passover lambs had to be killed at the temple. And Josephus said that on, on one particular Passover, that the book of Kidron ran red with the blood of all the lambs that had been killed to, to serve the millions of people that had come into Jerusalem for the Passover. You know, and we kind of, we kind of think of, you know, the sacrifice is not that big a deal, but it was a huge deal killing all these animals and draining the blood. And it's always been that way. Where would they put all the blood? It ran down off the, off the mountain into the stream. Uh, yeah. Normally it wasn't that big a deal because you didn't kill that many animals <laughs> except on Passover, Pentecost, and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. You know, the times when everybody came to, the, to Jerusalem and all of a sudden your, your little town swelled to millions of people all offering sacrifices on the same period of time. And then the blood would run. And, you know, we think about this. If you read different historical accounts of, of pagan temples that would do the same thing. When Cortez came into Central America and watched all the human sacrifice going on, it made him sick because the blood ran down the temple steps. And that is why he really killed all the people because he was just so sick of human sacrifice drawing that much blood. So he killed people. So he, well, he killed them in the name of God, trying to bring God to them. But you know, it wasn't a good thing. But by the same token, you could also understand why he reacted the way he did. 
you know, because we're not even talking cattle being killed by, by the Aztecs. We are talking about human sacrifice running down the temple. And we know those big ziggurats that you see in that area. He watched the blood running down those, you know, from so many people, thousands of people being killed each day. You know, we kind of have this sanitized view of what sacrifice was all about. It was a messy, bloody event, which is why when Jesus died on the cross, his death was a messy, bloody event on the crucifixion. You know, uh, the Passion of the Christ, you know, everybody made a big deal of how violent the Passion of the Christ was. You know, so when I went to see that, I was, I was kind of had this mindset that I was going to see something you know, that was going to be very much the real thing that happened. And as violent as the Passion of the Christ is, it is nothing compared to the descriptions in the Bible and, and text of what Jesus went through. Okay, you know, you got to understand when he was scourged, he was left in a body that basically did not look like a human being. The Romans used to take bets on who could take the biggest chunk of flesh out as they would scourge them. They had fun doing this. This was a game to them. And when he was cut with those whips, it was not something that was pleasant. He did not look like a man when he got done. They beat him around the face with a bag over his head saying, prophesy to us who hit you. They, you know, they plated the one-inch thorns down on his head on the crown of thorns. Then after all that, they said, okay, carry your cross. You know, and we think of these nice, finely polished crosses. It was a rugged cross full of splinters. Now, splinters would be bad enough to carry if your back hadn't been flayed open. And his back and shoulders had been flayed open, and he's carrying a rugged, splintered cross. Then he finally gets to Calvary, and they nail him to this cross. And they stand him up on the cross. And as that cross stands up, it drops into the hole that's going to hold the cross. A foot to three feet. Nailed by his hands and his feet. Driving splinters into his body. You know, we need to really understand what Jesus did when he paid for our sins. And if that wasn't enough... When he became sin, the father turned his back on him and no longer had fellowship with him. For the first time in all of history and all of eternity, the father turns his back on the son and, and their fellowship was broken. Now, we can't even fathom what that would have been like. The best thing, the, the closest we can come through is if we remember our first boyfriend or girlfriend and how crushed we were. Or for somebody older who's lost the, the love of their life after, after decades of being with them. And even that pales in comparison to the father turning his back on the son. Not only the father, but the Holy Spirit would have turned his back on the son because he was now sin. And Jesus called out on the cross at that time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's the same thing. People that do what is right oftentimes are going to pay the ultimate cost and in this world, even today, 
Christians are dying by the millions because they stand up for Christ and in a place where people hate them. And they know that they're going to die, and yet Christianity keeps growing in those places. I think in America and most of Europe, Christianity is not very strong because we don't look at it as something worth dying for in most cases. You know, the first time we get somebody in our face and teasing us or giving us a hard time, we tend to back down in America, and we have a very weak Christianity in consequence to it. Now, as I've said in many times, we need to be prepared because it is changing. It is changing in Europe. It's changing in America that we are at some point going to pay with our freedom and or our lives, even in America. We are seeing the tide changing against Christianity. And in one side, I say thank God because it'll help strengthen Christianity in the long run. Christianity has always been something that is people have looked at that is worth dying. We've said this over and over. The, the apostles' answer through the scriptures, every time that they were persecuted was, thank God I've been found worthy of suffering for Christ. What's our answer in America? Oh my goodness, I suffered. I must be doing something wrong. You know, our attitude is not the same thing. Now we're seeing a lot of this going on now as, as the world in our, is turning to be more and more evil. We're seeing more and kickback against Christians who take a stand for God. You know, we've seen these business people that are saying, I'm not going to participate in a homosexual union or losing their businesses because of it. Never in American history would we have ever expected something like that to happen. Freedom of religion was so strong, we never would have expected that to happen. People lose their jobs frequently when they won't back down from their, their biblical stance. It's getting bad even in our own country. And it's going to only get worse. As we get closer and closer to the end days, it's going to keep getting worse. And on one side, I think it's a good thing. I'm not looking forward to suffering, but by the same token, do we have a God who's worth suffering for? He died for us. And he says, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And most of the time, we need to look back and say, where am I willing to stand? What is my stand going to be? Am I willing to lose a job for God because my job is asking me to do something I can't do? Will I lose my business because I can't do what the world wants me to do? We have to be ready for that. In the Arab world, in the Muslim Arab world, you still, that's a very real thing. Many of them become Christians and you have nobody coming to your store anymore. You know, let's take the last two, last three verses. 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give, them, give their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And, and there stood not a man of their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. And they failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. They got the land that was promised to them. And remember, this is the promised land and that's what it's still referred to as this day is the promised land. Who promised it to them? God promised it to them. And here he says, you've entered in the promised land. You've conquered all the promised land. It took them seven years to do it. And he, and he gave them peace. And, you know, this is kind of, we covered the, this chapter, this book of Joshua pretty quick so far. You know, it's, you know, and we talked about it. Seven years it took them to do this, conquer this land. 
and it was God who conquered it for them. And we talked about this over and over. God said that none of your enemies are going to stand against you, and they didn't, except when they didn't want to try to get rid of them. And we, last, last week we covered a number of those places where, and this, and this group stayed in because they didn't, they, they, they didn't finish the job. But they, they didn't finish it not because God didn't finish it. They didn't finish it because they did not want to. And how many times do we as Christians not finish a job that God gives us because we just get tired of doing it or, or we just decide we don't want to go any further? We've had enough. We're not going to push any further. Well, we didn't want to do it in the first place, which some of the cases some of, the, some of these tribes didn't want to do that. But, you know, God, when you complete the task, gives us rest. And ultimately, our goal as Christians is to get to that rest that God gives us and the one, most wonderful thing is to be at rest. When you've accomplished what God has given you to do, and then you start resting, and then he'll give you something else to do, but he, he keeps giving you rest in between it. And one wonderful thing is to know that he does the work. Now, and that's what I love about God. We are saved by faith, not of works. We are kept by grace, not of works. And even the things we're going to be rewarded is what God does through us, not of our own works. So everything is about God. All we have to do is surrender to him. That doesn't mean we sit on our butt and sit around and do nothing. But we let God work through us. And we step out to do what he says. He told the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will feed your, fill, feed your mouth. Yeah. Fill your mouth. And so many times when we just will go out and share the gospel with people, we start talking about God, and the next thing you know, the Holy Spirit is filling your mouth. If you just start listening to yourself, you're going, wow, this is kind of interesting. I didn't know, you know, where's all this coming from? And it's the Holy Spirit filling us, doing the work, te- telling us when to, when to minister, when not to minister. Uh, when you're driving down the street, and all of a sudden you pass this person hitchhiking, and all of a sudden you're a mile or two down the road and you go, I'm supposed to pick that person up and you have to turn around and go pick that person up because you weren't listening when you first passed them. <laughs> I've done that many times. You know, all of a sudden I'm going, oh God, I think you're telling me to go. Okay, I'll go, I'll go take care of that. You know, it's so important just to be listened to that still small voice. And we're going to end here. and Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you and to share with you. We ask that you guide and lead us in this week. Help us to listen to your voice. Help us to, to follow you in all that you do and to stand for you and be willing to stand for you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.